Our fathers, we come before you this morning. We pray with mighty King David, a man who was after your own heart, a man who stands out in Scripture as one of the greats among the greats. And yet, fathers, we read this story which you have so honestly put down in Scripture, we realize that he was a man of like passions with us. We realize that he had his weaknesses, he had his faults and failings, and yet he was a man who could come before you and say, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my ways. See if there be any evil way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so, Father, we make this our prayer this morning as we come before your word. We realize that like Moses at the burning bush, we are standing on holy ground. We recognize that you have made your power available to us through the indwelling spirit and through the word of God, which is before us. We realize that they do not work independently. The only way that the spirit can use the word as a tool in our life is if we get off the page and into our soul. So, Father, we're here this morning asking that God, the Holy Spirit, will teach us, open our eyes to truths that will change our lives, that we may become more conformed to the character and the image of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, as you remember, in chapter 1, we took the theme from verse 22, that we are to be not hearers only, but doers also. When we hear the word of God, we are to digest it. We're to take it in like our daily food. We're to digest it, and it's to be converted in our soul into energy. That energy is to be exerted in what the Bible calls good works. We need to understand that good works, and James, of course, talks about good works in chapter 2 are not good because of simply what you do. If a brother or sister is destitute of clothing or daily food and you go and feed them, that in itself is not a good work. It's only a good work when it's motivated by the Spirit of God and not a desire for human pride and recognition. It's possible to do good things in a bad way. And what the Bible is talking about when it speaks of good works, we refer to as divine good. In other words, it is motivated by the Spirit. It is energized by the Word. We are following the leading of the Holy Spirit. You know, all around, probably every town, every city in this country, there are people standing on street corners with signs saying, need help, anything's appreciated, do a deed of kindness, on and on and on and on. You know, most of those the Spirit never moves me to give to. But there are times when I go by and it's as if the Spirit puts his, taps his finger on my shoulder and says, this one. You need to give something to this one. And we're only going to know that if we stay sensitive and allow the Spirit of God to be in the driver's seat in our life. And it only becomes a good work when that good work is motivated by the Spirit. As I said last night, 
We've got to get to the understanding in our Christian life that at any given moment, we are either motivated by the flesh or by the spirit. And so becoming hearers of the word and doers is only going to work, as James says, when we receive the word implanted. And how can I receive it implanted? Number one, I'm a clean vessel fit for the master's use. Number two, I'm in submission to God, the Holy Spirit. Number three, I'm attentive to his word as it's being taught to me, and I'm receiving it as it is, the word of God, which lives and abides forever, and I am trusting that the spirit of God is going to take that word, that seed, and plant it in my soul so that it'll bear fruit. It's an attitude of dependence. It's a humble attitude. It's a submissive attitude. We're going to get into humility. James is going to take us through seven steps of what it means to come to a point of humility in chapter 4, and we'll get to that tomorrow morning. By the way, I didn't mention this, but after uh, lunch, Fasil is going to give us a report on Pakistan, our last hour, and you don't need to stay for it if you have things that are calling on you, is going to be question and answer. I should have told you that last night. You could have been writing all your questions down, but if you don't remember them, it doesn't matter anyway. <laughs> Come with me to Romans chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul, in perfect agreement with James, describes for us the difference between life in the spirit and life in the flesh. You see, the unbeliever doesn't have to worry about this because they only have one driver, and that's the flesh. They have no other option. They can do all the good deeds they want, but those good deeds are not good in the sight of God. You and I are different because we have options. And those options are, on the left hand, the flesh. On the right hand, the spirit. And every day we make a choice, and if we don't make the choice, the choice is made for us, the flesh takes over. Right? So follow along with me. This is a magnificent chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We stand before God holy. We are imputed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. All of our sins have been removed from us as far as the east from the west, and the Lord promises that he has buried them in the depths of the sea, and he'll remember them no more. When you start beating yourself over the back over that sin you committed 10 years ago, and you say, Father, for the 128th time, for the 10,000th time, I'm asking you to forgive me for that sin, and he says, what sin? It's gone. Leave it where he put it. Leave it at the cross. When Christ died on the cross, he paid the penalty for all our sins, past, present, and future. And so he's telling us here that we stand before God with a perfect standing. Ephesians 1.6 uses this term, accepted in the beloved. How does God see you and I as children of God? He sees us as he sees his own son, Jesus Christ. But we have to deal with practical life. He says the law of the spirit of life. Now I want you to get this. We're talking life and death. Remember James chapter 2? Work Faith without works is dead. We also pointed out from the objector, the diatribe, works without faith is dead. Here's life. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. James talked about the law of liberty. This is the liberty 
It is liberty from sin and death. For what the law, speaking here of the Mosaic law, what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. We were the problem, not the law. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and on account of sin, he condemned or he judged sin in the flesh. He paid the penalty. It was paid in full. That important little word, he's now drawing a conclusion that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. There's no period here. Listen closely. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There are your options. Energized, you know, you see certain things and it says powered by Delco or powered by GE. Well, the question for you and I every moment of our life, what are we powered by? Are we powered by the sin nature or are we powered by the spirit? He's going to make it very clear here. For those who live according to the flesh, say, why do people do what they do? Why do some Christians live the way they do? He tells us right here, they set their mind on the things of the flesh. We're just talking about this issue in our men's class about why do we need the word? Why do we need to feed on the word daily? And the discussion around our table was we're constantly being bombarded by anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-truth information. The only thing we have to counteract it is right here in the word. But there are some people who set their mind on the flesh and that doesn't always mean sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Sometimes it just means position, money, better job, status, recognition, honor from my peers, whatever it may be. And once you set your mind on that, you have just put the sin nature in the driver's seat. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, in other words, they set their mind on the Spirit. That's why we're in the Word today, to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, these things never work for me. I'm not going to pull my gun out, I promise. <laughs> Verse 6, for to be carnally minded. Carnally minded simply refers to the sin nature. To be carnally minded is death. What did James say? Faith without works is dead. Same death, same issue. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity or hostility against God, it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh, what does it say? Sometimes please God. No? That's not what it says? No. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Did you know that you can preach a sermon to a church and not be filled with the Spirit? You can, I've done it. I didn't even get struck by lightning. You can do it. I used to know a guy who every time he had a fight with his wife, he would have one of his subordinates stand in and teach for him because he was so riled up and angry, he said, I can't, I can't preach the Word when I'm in this condition. My solution would be just confess it, let God handle it, and get back up there and teach the Word. 
but at least he recognized the principle. If we're in the flesh, we can give money. If we're in the flesh, we can feed that starving person or clothe that person who's destitute, shivering in the cold. We can do all those things. But they're not going to be pleasing to God. Remember the passage in 1 Corinthians 3 where we stand before the Lord at the judgment seat and we have wood, hay, and stubble and we have gold, silver, and precious stones and most people, <clears throat> excuse me, think of the wood, hay, and stubble as their sins. Your sins will never be mentioned at the bema seat of Jesus Christ. If they are, then God's a liar. He said they're forgotten, they're forgiven. They're washed away. You say then, what's the wood hand stubble? It's all the good things that we do in the energy of the flesh. It's not going to last for eternity. I don't know about you. I'm sure I'll have a bonfire. I don't want it to be any bigger than it has to be. Right? We cannot please God in the flesh. Verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit dwells in you. Uh, the word to dwell here, you could actually translate, is at home. Is the spirit at home in your life? You know, I've heard the illustration that we invite Jesus into our life, but then we tell him these rooms are locked, they're off limits. Well, if he doesn't have access to it all, he's not at home. That Christ may be at home in your life, that's the goal. He says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. This body is dead. It can do nothing good of itself. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. This is not talking about the resurrection. That's the way it's most often interpreted. It's talking about today. He who dwells in you can give you life today. He can take command of your life. He can take control of your life. He can sit on the throne of your life, but he'll never do it without your permission. You know, I mentioned last night when God created Adam, he gave him sovereignty over the earth. He gave him dominion. He said, take the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. You know what that proves? That proves something that comes true at the very end when it says, and they shall reign and rule with Christ forever. You know what God's original plan for man is? When man was created in God's image, it doesn't mean our physical figure. I think it involves a couple of things. We were created with three parts, spirit, soul, and body. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5. Ben just pointed this out to me this morning. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 talks about, may the Lord sanctify you wholly, completely, that is in every part, spirit, soul, and body. You know, when we use those three, we always turn them around, don't we? Body, soul, and spirit. That's the way we hear it. Do you know why we do that? Because we think backwards. Think of the temple. I wish I had a big whiteboard up here, but just bear with me and think of the temple. You have the outer court, 
out a wall, everybody can see it. Right? You have the holy place, open to only a few, the priests, and then you have the holy of holies open to only one. Your body is the outer court. Your soul is the holy place. You only let a few people into your soul. We call them friends. The spirit is the place for only one. And that spirit is created in you the moment you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. And what is it that's created new? Paul calls it the new man. And in that new man, in that holy of holies that resides within you, the spirit of God dwells. And did you know that when you fail, when you sin, when you walk contrary to the plan and purpose of God, that holy place remains untouched. Because Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 that the inner man was created in righteousness and holiness. And the Spirit of God can only dwell in a holy environment. And when we sin, the veil closes, the holy place is shut off, and we're functioning on the second level. The second level is soulish. Well, the biblical term for soulish is carnal. So what Paul says here is, verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, what happens? You will die. You will die. Let, me tell, let me ask you, I, I know you haven't. Did you die the last time you sinned? Not physically. From a biblical point of view, you did. And it's the death that James is talking about. It is operational death. The inability to function in the realm of God. The inability to take advantage of the Word of God. The inability to live under the power of the Holy Spirit. And why is that? Because we make a simple choice. And that choice is either I set my mind on the Spirit, or I set my mind on the things of the flesh. Let's go back to James chapter 3. I wanted to do that just as a little added emphasis because James chapter 2 is so often misused, misinterpreted, misapplied, and you know, I just, I want to try to clear the air on that issue. Alright, we're going to get into the untamed tongue. I'm sure this will affect none of us. key verse in James chapter 3 I would take would be verse 13. Go there with me. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. First of all, I want you to notice let him show. Remember when James in chapter 2 kept saying, you see then? You see then? Because the only way that we can manifest our faith outwardly is by the deeds that we do. What we believe becomes reality 
in our life, in our experience, and in the eyes of those around us as they observe faith at work, faith in action. So, if we're wise and if we have understanding of God's word, let us show it. Let us show by good conduct that the works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Folks, I'm sorry. <coughs> I told you I had a sinus infection that's making me cough. We'll get through it. We're not here to look pretty. We're just here to get the job done, right? What is the meekness of wisdom? I don't know if I can suck and talk at the same time. Try it. Try it. Try it. You'll like it. It's hunting season. We'll see. It's hunting season. That's right. What is wisdom? Someone tell me, what's wisdom? We've got a thousand different definitions, don't we? Hold your place and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll show you what Paul says wisdom is. I like his definition better. Oh, I've got to read even more than I was planning on because I love this passage. 1 Corinthians 1.26, you see your calling, brethren? Look around you. You see your calling, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things that are despised, God has chosen and the things that are nothing to bring to nothing the things that are. When I was a Bible college student and I first hit on this passage, I was exhilarated. God has chosen, chosen the foolish, the base, the despised, the nothing, and I said, I'm overqualified. <laughs> Verse 29, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us. What? You know what wisdom is? Wisdom's Christ. Have you ever read Proverbs chapter 4? Have you ever read Proverbs chapter 8? I, wisdom, was with him in the beginning. I was at his side daily as he was creating the world. Who is wisdom? Wisdom's Jesus Christ. Because what is wisdom? Wisdom is the mind of God personified in human experience and human existence. And that is true to the ultimate degree only in the person of Jesus Christ. He has made unto us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So come back to James 3. We're going to take a quick run through it. I've got to move rapidly because you're all chomping at the bit for lunch. And again, you know, I could teach on any of these chapters for weeks at a time, uh, but we can only hit the high points, but I pray that God will give you something that you can carry away that will be worthwhile. My brethren, who's he talking to? Believers. Believers. 
Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we, that is, we who are teachers, shall receive a stricter judgment. Anyone remember Luke 12, 48? To whom much is given, much will be required. When you take the position of a teacher, you stand in, shall I say, double jeopardy. You are in a position that has a high calling, a high accountability, because we're going to receive, we receive double blessing. You know, when we all come together like this, I walk away richer than anyone. I am just so filled with the, the joy of sharing the word and interaction with people and getting to know new friends and, and I walk away on a high course physically and mentally I'm exhausted. But it's, it's thrilling. But one day I'm going to answer. I'm going to answer for what I teach you. And James is saying, don't rush to be a teacher. When I was in Australia, we had a Bible institute in our church. We had young men coming up that we were training and preparing for ministry, whether it was church ministry or missions. And there were those who were very, very reluctant to, to step into any position. And there were those that couldn't wait until they could get behind the pulpit. And the ones that couldn't wait to get behind the pulpit, I was always very suspicious of. Very suspicious. Someone just told me this morning, they were talking to a guy that was training for the ministry, and they said, why did you choose the ministry? You know what his answer was? That's where the money is. I haven't found that to be true. <laughs> it's an awesome thing to consider the accountability that comes with being a teacher. Notice verse 2, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. Again, James uses the word perfect, telios, five times in this epistle. The same number of times he uses the word save, and telios refers to spiritual maturity. It doesn't mean perfect in the sense of sinless. It means complete. It means whole. It means spiritually mature. A spiritually mature man is able to bridle his tongue. How many spiritually mature men do we have in here? As of Friday, I became mature. You want a goal to set for yourself? There it is. And I have to tell you, I'm convicted by this because from the time I was a little kid, I had a temper with a fuse about that long. And it is so easy for me to speak without thinking. We need to learn to think before we speak. He illustrates in verse 3, Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us. We turn their whole body. You know, there are different ideas on the training of horses. Some use the bit to train them to rein, and then once they learn to rein from the bit, they use a hackamore, a halter, or something else. The other way of thinking of it is the vaquero way of California. The vaquero way does exactly the opposite. They train them with a hackamore first, and when they know how to rein, then they put the bit in their mouth so that that bit never hurts the mouth. Bill, you ever have a cold jawed horse? 
There are horses that have had their mouths so beaten and battered by people that don't know how to handle them that they'll just take the bit in their teeth and run with it. I've heard guys describe their wives that way. <laughs> you don't want that kind of horse. His point is very simply this. The bit guides the horse. Is that right? No. It's the rider that guides the horse. You have to think about James' illustrations. We put bits in the horse's mouth so they obey us, the rider. Look also at the ships, verse 4. Although they're large and driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder. Does the rudder turn the ship? No, the pilot turns the ship. Do you understand the illustration James is making? Who's holding the reins of your life? Who's at the, the wheel that turns the rudder? Who's in control? Is it the Spirit of God or is it the sin nature? Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. Have you noticed all the smoke around? It's terrible. I think it's part of the reason I've got this sinus infection. What's it take to burn forest down? A tiny match. Tiny little spark. Our tongue has the power to burn down a forest. And what is that forest? It's a marriage. It's a family. It's friends. It's relationships. How many people I know through the years of my life who have been estranged and alienated and hateful to one another over a word spoken? You all have seen the same thing. Let's don't be the one that speaks that word. Be very careful with the tongue. It's very dangerous. Verse 6, the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members in that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it's set on fire by hell. This is only true when we're in the flesh. That is exactly what our tongue does. Our tongue is the expression of Satan himself. It is lit on fire from the hatred, the hostility, the envy, the jealousy, the malice of the king of hate, Satan himself. In verse 7, he comes back to the illustration I used last night of Adam. Every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Do you know that you can go out to California if, if there's anything left of California? Most of you have come from there. Are there anybody left out there? 75,000 people moved to Arizona from California this year. 75,000. But anyway, there's a place out there called Ocean World or something like that, right? Is that the name of it? Sea World. You can go and have, have people with killer whales. They're trained. They've tamed, how do you tame a killer whale? I don't know. But they do it. We can tame anything. I want you to get this in verse 8. No man can tame the tongue. He said, I'm going to stop saying those words. Good luck. <laughs> you can't do it. It's beyond your power. No man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil 
full of deadly poison. What is it Paul says in Romans 3 and verse 10? There's none good, no, not one. There's none righteous. There's none that understand. There's none that does good. They've all gone out of the way. They've all turned aside to evil. The poison of vipers is under their lips and the way of peace they have not known. That's true of every single person in the energy of the flesh. That is the natural way of fallen man. Well, if I can't tame my tongue, who can? You know, it's good when we read scripture, and I would encourage you to do this just in your own private devotion time. Ask questions. Ask questions. Six questions. Longfellow said it best. I have six little friends. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and where and why and how and when and who. Ask those questions. If I can't tame my tongue, who can? Well, he's going to tell us, but let's move on. With it, verse 9, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men. How quickly we turn from praise. You know what? I've seen it happen in congregations. When I was a Bible college student, I was teaching up at Wiki Up, Arizona, which was out in the middle of nowhere. It was the Wild West. Every week there was some new disaster. Ranchers came to church who shot at each other across lines. I mean, it was wild. And we had just sung and praised God, and two guys got into it, and the fight started in the middle of the church floor, and I had to haul the guys out the front door and say, if you're going to fight, fight outside. Here we're praising God. And then we turn around and call a neighbor something else. Verse 10. Oh, I should point out to you in verse 9. We bless God our Father and we curse men who are made in the similitude of God. Made in the likeness and the image of God. Even unbelievers retain that image. It's incomplete. It's fallen. But they're still in the likeness of God. Don't ever forget that. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing my brethren, and this is an understatement. These things ought not to be so. It's not the right way to live. It's not what should be coming from our mouth. I told someone last night, when I teach Bible class, I'm just talking to myself. I try to study the text as if God is speaking to me and see how it impacts and how it affects me and I stand up and I let you get the overflow of what God's taught me. And when I see James rebuking these things, it convicts me. I don't know if it's encouraging or discouraging for you to hear that pastors, teachers, leaders are just as frail as you are. Verse 11, does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? You know, it's amazing. James continues to shift his figures and his metaphors and his illustrations, but he takes all of them from nature. He takes all of them from nature. 
Did you know that there's perfect agreement between the laws of nature and the laws of God? You know why? Same guy implemented both laws. And so James looks at nature, and where do you think he learned it? He learned it from the master. He grew up in the household of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you study the scripture, you'll find that when Jesus left Nazareth, where did he go? I know it's on the tip of your tongue. <laughs> na, 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 ka. Nazareth to Capernaum. You know what Mark tells us? I think John tells us too. His mother and his brothers and his sisters went with him. You know what he did shortly after that? Because see, he was the eldest son, wasn't he? By then Joseph's gone. Joseph died. The oldest son becomes the head of the household. The oldest son provides for the family. Jesus moves the family to Capernaum because that's where he's going to be for his ministry. And very shortly after that, he goes up to a natural amphitheater and he preaches what's called the Sermon on the Mount, which shouldn't be called the Sermon on the Mount. It should be called the Sermon by the Sea. He wasn't speaking down the mountain. He was speaking from the sea up into that amphitheater. We, some of us have stood there. In fact, the first time I saw it, our guide had a guy stand at the bottom by the sea, and he said, someone went way up there. I used to be able to run in those days. I ran way up there. I was clear at the top. You could see 200,000 people in this natural amphitheater. And he had the guy at the bottom open his Bible and start reading in a normal voice, less loud than I'm reading to you or speaking to you right now through this thing. I could hear him as clear as a bell. Because sound goes outward and upward from the water. And the Lord could have sat down and spoke in a normal voice and everyone heard him. I'll tell you one guy that was sitting there who didn't even believe in him, who was looking at him like the older brother who has pretensions of greatness. You know, it's terrible to grow up with someone who thinks they're perfect. Just think how hard it would be growing up with someone that was. <laughs> and James and Jude never believed until after the resurrection. But he heard it. And the way we know he heard it, and I told you this last night, if you look at Arnold Fruchtenbaum, William Barclay, some of those, they give a whole list of parallels between the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James, and there are many, many of them. So he uses natural illustrations because he heard someone say, look at the flowers of the field, look at the birds of the air, using nature to illustrate, using the physical and the visible to illustrate the spiritual and the invisible. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Answer, of course not. Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives? Or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. What is the meekness of wisdom? It's something you haven't got. It's something I haven't got. 
It's something only one person who ever walked this world, as a matter of fact. I want to tell you about him. If I can find it. Bear with me. The best of men that air wore earth about him was a sufferer. A soft, meek, patient, humble, tranquil spirit. The first true gentleman who ever lived. I would change one word in that. He wasn't soft. But he was meek. What is the meekness of wisdom? You could say the meekness of wisdom or the wisdom of meekness. And I want you to get this point because if you get this point, you've got chapter 3. Wisdom is meek and meekness is wise. And the first true gentleman that ever trod this earth gave an invitation. In Matthew chapter 11, he said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The word rest means refreshment. I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly, and you will find rest for your soul. You know how the Greeks define meekness? Back to the analogy of the horse. When they train their war horses, and that, that training and the skills of those horses is now illustrated in the Lipizzaner stallions, if you've ever seen a demonstration by those magnificent horses where they do the caprioli, and the rider with only pressure from his calves and his legs commands that mighty, powerful war horse, and that horse will jump in, up in the air and strike both directions. That's because when they got surrounded in battle, they would do that with the horse and it would clear a path where they could ride away. That's meekness. Meekness means power under perfect control. Power under perfect control. Control. Jesus was not saying, I am soft and weak. He said, I am meek and lowly. In other words, I am power under the command of God, and I am lowly because I have stepped down into this world to save sinners. That's the Savior that we have. What a Savior. What a Redeemer. Let's learn meekness. The meekness of wisdom is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's it. The Christ who has made wisdom to you is the Christ who has made meekness to you. And you know what? Meekness never has to force its way because meekness knows I'm not in control. He's in control. How did Isaiah describe the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ? A smoking flax he will not quench. A bruised reed he will not break. He will speak, he, he will not shout in the streets. He will speak quietly. That was the whole ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Power under control. What kind of power? Power that has sh shaken the world to this day and will impact the world throughout all eternity. The meekness, God in control. 
And here's the opposite of meekness. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. You know, the minute you tell somebody they're acting out of envy, they'll deny it. Nobody wants to be accused of that. You're just envious. Bitter envy and self-seeking, what are they? Envy looks at this guy and says, he has something I don't have. I hate him. He has something I want that I can't get myself. I'll destroy him. That's the envy. The self-seeking, I'm going to use him as my stepping stone to climb up. You have in your notes, you know these 30 pages that I did for you? If you'll look in your notes, you have biblical references there to prove that envy was behind the persecution of every prophet, of every apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What did Pilate say? Pilate knew because of envy they had delivered him unto him. Envy. He has the crowds. We don't. Let's kill him. He's too popular. We're not. Let's kill him. And you know what? You see this in churches and you see it in pastors. You, you would not believe the envy that I have seen among pastors. He has a crowd. I don't. I'm going to blackballing, slandering, blinding, gossiping, do anything I can to try to destroy him. Verse 15, this wisdom, this is wisdom by the way, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. You know what he just gave you right there? The world, the flesh, and the devil. This wisdom belongs to the devil's world. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing is there. You know who doesn't envy? The meek. You know why? They know who's in control. You know, if we stopped and thought in every situation that we get into where anger starts rising, we start getting agitated. For me, it's always on the road, driving. People drive me crazy. You're sitting at the green light. There's two cars in front of you. or It's a red light. You're sitting there, two cars in front of you. The light turns green. You're thinking, okay, we're going to start going here pretty soon. The guy up front, I don't know what he's doing. Maybe he's playing his phone. Maybe he's looking in a store window, watching a girl walk by. Who knows? Lights green, lights are green, lights green. Finally, he goes, turns yellow. <laughs> you know what? I try to use opportunities like that, and my wife can tell you, she does ride with me, that sometimes I bless God and I curse men. And I try to use those times as an exercise. Remember the old days on the TV when they would say there's going to be a test of the National Emergency Broadcast System and then it go beep for a minute, drive you crazy. Remember what it said immediately after? This has been a test. That's what every day presents us. This has been a test. Did we pass or did we fail? Verse 17, the wisdom 
is from above. That's what we want. That's what we're after. It comes only through the Word of God. It's implemented only by the Spirit of God. It can only take place in the child of God, and it only happens when we lay hold of meekness. Submission. Unconditional surrender. That's what meekness is all about. Unconditional surrender. By the way, it's surrender to the will of God and the plan of God. You say, what's the difference? The will of God is revealed. It's right here. God tells us His will in His Word. The plan of God is not explained in here because the plan of God is personal. What is God's plan for me? His will has been revealed. His plan will be discovered. If I do His will, I will find the plan. You know what that's called? This is going to surprise you. Meekness. That's meekness. The wisdom that's from above is first. What's the number one criteria? Cure. Cure from what? No taint of the sin nature. It's called filled with the Holy Spirit. Be not drunk with wine or in his excess, but be filled. The word filled means under the control of. If I had read further on in Romans chapter 8, I would have gotten to verse 14, and it says a very important thing. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. That should present a conundrum to you. And conundrums in the Bible are there to make us think. Does that mean that every child of God is always led by the Spirit of God? Of course not. As a matter of fact, I would suggest the majority are not. Most of the time. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Well, the key is in the word sons, which is a great word, huios, which is one of five words for the developmental stage of a person growing from infancy to maturity, and huios means a mature son. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are mature sons of God. How do we get led by the Spirit of God? You ready for it? It's going to surprise you. It's called meekness, unconditional surrender. That's it. The wisdom that's from above is pure and peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5 5? Blessed are the five, 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 nine. I just slipped a cog. It's one or two. Blessed are the peacemakers. You know what peacemakers are? Peacemakers are people who bring people to Christ. Peacemakers are people who are willing to reconcile. Peacemakers are people who are willing to take down barriers. In other words, peacemakers are people who are willing to be servants of God, friends of Christ, led by the Spirit, producing unity and not harmony. Two weeks from now, I'm going to be in Idaho 
And I'm going to be teaching a conference, and the title of the conference is Developing Esprit de Corps in the Royal Family of God. Did you know that we have an honor code? We have an honor code. I'm 10 minutes over time. I know you're hungry. Lunch is coming. Turn with me to Ephesians 4, and I want to leave you with our honor code. And you know what? If you keep this in mind, you will find that it becomes very easy to identify people who are not spirit-filled. It's very easy. They're always troublemakers. They always have a gripe. They always have a point that they have to make. They always have to find a fault. They always have to drive a wedge. They are always trying to separate and never to unite and bring together. Here's our honor code. I therefore, verse 1, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you're called. The word worthy is oxios, and it was used in the ancient world of the balance scales. When you get the scales to balance, that was called worthy. I beseech you to walk worthy of your calling. Here's your calling in Christ. Here's your life. Make them balance. That's what he's saying. With all arrogance, self-promotion, all about me, no. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another, love. You know how to summarize verse 2? This will probably surprise you. It's called meekness. You know, sometimes we have to repeat. Seven times in Genesis chapter 1, God says, each bringing forth according to its own kind, and the evolutionists still don't get it. He said it seven times. When Jesus talked to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus said, how can a man be born again? Jesus said seven times, believe, 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 Nicodemus is. I guess I have to believe. Sometimes we have to have it repeated. Here's the honor code. There are three bodies. Right? You written one body. Oh, okay. There's one body. There's one spirit. As you are called in one hope of your calling. There's one Lord. One faith, one baptism, I believe this to be the baptism of the Holy Spirit, not water baptism. Water baptism doesn't unite anybody. Matter of fact, churches divide over it. But we do know that every person who believes in Jesus Christ is baptized by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. There's your honor code. It's unity. You know what destroys unity? Arrogance. Because the center of arrogance is the center of, isn't it interesting, the word sin? What's the center of sin? I. What's the center of pride? All goes together. The unity of the body is commission. 
and to work for that unity and to strive to bring harmony, not by compromise, not by agreeing just to go along, but in willingness to accept people where they are and give them the opportunity to grow to where they need to be. To be willing to embrace those that you have no natural affinity for. No natural rapport with, why? Either to bring them into Christ or because they're in Christ and we are one. Let's strive to be that kind of a peacemaker and we'll find that James chapter 3 will be less of a conviction because we'll stop cursing men and praising God and we'll start praising God and blessing men. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for these marvelous people that have come out on this Saturday when there are so many things that they could be doing. I just pray your blessing on your word. Drive it deep into our hearts and souls. Use it to transform us. Let it make a difference right now. Right now, if we humble ourselves, if we truly seek that meekness that is Christ, the very expression of his character, let this word, this truth that we have studied become a part of our lives and begin to change us in our interaction with other people that we might demonstrate the wisdom that comes from above, that wisdom which is Christ himself. We pray in his name. Amen.